Time for Swordplay. Alex, last week marked the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. You know, Nick, I heard Stanley Kubrick was going to direct an elaborate phony moon landing on a soundstage in Hollywood, but he dropped out of the project because uh, actors insisted on filming on location. (laughs) Astronauts. Such divas, man. (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's right. We're finishing up the book, so let that be a reminder to the reader. Go back, read chapter 5, or better yet, read the whole book, listen to the first four podcasts if you have an extra four hours on your hand, and then come back to this podcast, and we will finish up 1 Thessalonians. Nick, looks like we have right off the bat here in verses 1 and 2... Paul referring to the day of the Lord as times and epics. What does he mean by that? What are the times and epics? Yeah, so my English standard uh, talks about the times and the seasons. Times and seasons. Ah. Um, uh, what do you think, Alex? You start off with this. All right, well, Question. the words times and epics... Um, they sound almost like, you know, eons, like thousands and thousands and that. Well, I mean, it has been a couple thousand years, so maybe there's something to that. The words are synonymous. They can be used to describe any event, time, or period of time, depending on the context. It's similar to the saying, the day and hour. It's just generic. It's unspecified uh, time frame. The exact phrase, times and epics, that's actually used in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, where Jesus tells his apostles, it's not for you to know the times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And there Jesus was responding to the apostles' question of when he'll restore the kingdom to Israel. Now the apostles, they had a single outcome in mind, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus, he responded with a plural phrase, times and epics. So don't let that plural phrasing in 1 Thessalonians 5, throw you off. It's it's actually referring to a singular outcome of Jesus' return. But how much that happens in between then and now, the times and epics, that's up to the Father. Now, the day of the Lord here um, continues the theme of Christ's return and resurrection. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 10, 2.19, 3.13, 4.15, every chapter. So though the day of the Lord can in other contexts refer to the destruction of a nation, such as Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, that doesn't seem to fit the context here in 1 Thessalonians. Though some of our uh, hyper-preterist brethren uh, might argue otherwise. And I I do have more of a preterist leaning, but I'm not hyper-preterist. I don't see every verse as AD 70 when it talks about the return of Christ. It's hard to see how times and epics here in this context would refer to just another 15 years or so, considering when Paul wrote this letter in the mid-50s. So I don't think it's referring to Jerusalem in this context. I could be wrong, but I think Paul already talked about the wrath coming upon the Jews in chapter 2, verse 16, that it was already upon them, probably alluding to the plagues that did precede their destruction. But it's hard for me to, to reconcile times and epics with ah, another 14 years, another 15 years. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's a astute observation. Uh, for me, the phrase there now concerning also stands out. The structure itself, it seems to indicate that Paul is referring to a specific question that the Thessalonians had. So 
it's possible that this was uh, their phrase, the Thessalonians' phrase uh, of the question, phrasing of the question. Uh, of course, it seems more likely that this is indeed uh, stock phrasing for the church's teaching about the coming of the Lord, times and seasons, times and uh, epochs. Um, we must not miss how Paul is approaching uh, the phrase in verse 2, uh, the day of the Lord, um, how he is, he is taking that, he is appropriating it for a Christian audience. This actually is a phrase that reaches back into the Hebrew uh, Bible, day of Yahweh, Yom Yahweh. Right. And right. it speaks of a judgment period, typically upon a specified nation. Here, that phrase is applied to Christ. It's, he is the Lord, Christ is Lord. And so, a couple of things that are emphasized here is one, I believe the deity of Christ is emphasized since he's equated with Yah uh, in this. And then second, uh, it is Christ who executes this day of judgment uh, that will come like a thief in the night. So those are some things that stand out in addition to the things that you have pointed out regarding um, uh, verses 1 and 2. Yeah, it's a good catch. We can move forward here to verse 3. People saying peace and safety, peace and security. Um, but Paul says that with sudden destruction, they will be destroyed. Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So let's talk a bit about who will be destroyed? Who is it that would be saying peace and safety, Alex? Well, in keeping with where Paul will go with uh, this idea in the next few verses, they who are destroyed will be the sons of darkness, uh, the sons of night. In other words, all who are not loyal to Jesus Christ will remain under wrath. Uh, we'll all be taken by surprise when the end comes, everybody. All Christians living and dead will be caught up in the sky, as we saw in the previous chapter. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 15, uh, 51 through 52, uh, regarding the resurrection, he says, we'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So the next time you blink, you could be in the air with your new body, with Jesus. And the flip side, of course, is for all who have not pledged fidelity to Christ, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, mockers will come, following after their own lusts, denying any kind of judgment upon the world, deliberately overlooking the fact that the world was once destroyed by water. And uh, these are the ones I think Paul has here saying, peace and safety. Uh, the final judgment will destroy the world by fire, and those destroyed will be all of the ungodly. And my reasoning for taking Second Peter 3 as a case for the final judgment, as opposed to a temporal judgment on a nation like the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, would be the allusion made there to the world being destroyed next by fire instead of water like the first time. And so that's why I'm bringing in Second Peter 3 as a supporting text here for First Thessalonians 5. What are your thoughts, Nick? Well, it's interesting. You, you dig back uh, <clears throat> also into uh, into history. The Roman Empire actually used that phrase "peace and safety" in its propaganda for promoting Roman peace. The Pax Romana. Oh, that's right. All over the empire, they had erected their "peace and security," "peace and safety" slogan. 
Uh, and there are numerous examples of that. Um, so thanks be to Caesar who brings us peace and safety. And that is the attitude that Paul is critiquing. Uh, the phrase also recalls Jeremiah 6 and verse 14, peace and peace, but there is no peace. So on the whole, this phrase is spoken by the arrogant, by the self-sufficient, by the self-deceived, and uh, they have no expectation of the intervention or invasion of God into the world. After all, the government's in charge. Fat cats in positions of powers are going to take care of everything, right? We'll take it from here, say the men in black suits. They had them then. I believe we have them now. And Paul says to all that, how foolish, how foolish. Uh, as to the identity of they, uh, I'll come alongside here and uh, just mention how they, the word itself, implies outsiders versus those who are inside of Christ, those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, it could be the, the false prophets. They had those. could be the government propaganda that was familiar to the Thessalonians. Uh, I think it doesn't appear to be Christians, at least uh, faithful Christians. Um, and I don't think this kind of speech should be found in Christians. This kind of talk is children of night kind of talk, not mm. children of light kind of talk. So, uh, so know, that's a bit about that. Yeah, as you were talking there, I wondered if it was really uh, – if it's false prophets or government propaganda, does it really matter? Isn't it the same spirit of the age, the ruler of the uh, – prince of the ruler of the air kind of uh, thing really pulling the strings in the background? The same lie coming from the same mouth, yeah. Well, Nick, let's talk about who are these uh, sons of light, the sons of day that Paul uses here in verse 5. So this phrase, uh, sons of day, sons of light, actually is a callback. We're supposed to recall the words of Jesus, I believe. Um, Luke 16, verse 8, John 12, and verse 36. In both of those places, Jesus talks about the sons of the day, sons of the light. Uh, Paul uses it elsewhere, Ephesians 5, verse 8. Um, and it seems like uh, the basic premise is if you are in Christ, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, the light has arisen and shines on you. The light has arisen and shines on Christians. We are the illuminated ones. We are the ones who've been enlightened by Christ. And therefore, uh, change, transformation has taken place. We're no longer children of night. We are now children of light. Uh, right. We are no longer children of darkness. We are children of the day. So, um so that's that's what stands out to me. What about for you, Alex? Yeah, as you mentioned, illumination and transformation, it almost reminded me of um, what we've talked about before, the uh, talk of Christian theosis, you know, this changing of our body from an earthly one to a heavenly spiritual one. Um, the phrase sons of day, I did find some interesting things in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, not the portions... Uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are the biblical portions, but the other portions that are typically called the sect sectarian writings. Uh, these are things that were written by the Qumran community. And there's uh, an important manuscript that was found called the War Scroll. And in the War Scroll, it outlines what looks like they believed to be an apocalyptic battle that would bring an end to all evil. And the, ba the battle only has two groups, the Sons of Light who are backed by God's angels from heaven 
and the sons of darkness who are backed by Satan, whom they called uh, Belial, and also Satan's angels and demons. In this uh, apocalyptic war, it goes on for 40 years. It's marked by six epic battles, which leave both sides at a stalemate, three to three. And in the seventh and final battle, the decisive blow is dealt by God himself to all the forces of evil, and evil is eradicated forever. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, There's probably a connection between how Paul uses this phrase just like Jesus used this phrase, as you mentioned, and how the Qumran community used it. Uh, This passage is describing those who are righteous, the Christians at Thessalonica, persevering under persecution from the unrighteous, looking forward to the return of Christ to deliver us. And so you have the same themes going on here in 1 Thessalonians, the theme of sons of light versus sons of day. The theme of persevering under persecution, Christ will deliver us. God will come and eradicate evil. We're looking forward to that day at his return. So I just thought I'd bring some of that in because I I imagine that that Dead Sea Sea Scroll stuff, the Qumran community stuff, I imagine that was floating around, you know, in the, um, amongst the people, right? (laughs) So it's probably relevant to what was going on in the Christian conversation. Well, Nick, next, in verses 6 through 7, we have this metaphor being drawn by Paul, this analogy. And so why does Paul compare being asleep or also drunk with being awake or also sober? Why don't you talk about that? Well, obviously it means that Christians are not fans of Bob Seger. Uh, That is, uh, we are not working on our night moves, as it were. Um, hey, there's one minute sermon for you, right? Uh, night there moves. you go. Um, when you, I think this this seems to be what's in back of the metaphor here. When when you're asleep or when you're drunk, you are you're not in control of yourself. You're controlled by outside forces. Uh, in this case, it could be the government propaganda. Um, it could also be the the false prophets. Um, I think especially today for us, I think of the stuff that circulated on social media. Uh, how how that um, grabs hold of people's minds and steers them down all kinds of wrong pathways, stuff like that. Um, you're just you're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Right. Uh, you are not in control. You're out of control. Whereas when you are awake, when you're sober and not intoxicated, not drunk, um, you're in control of your faculties and you are given to self-control. And so I think that's... Uh, kind of what's at the heart of these various metaphors is this idea of um, who's controlling who. Are you controlling yourself? Are you being controlled by others? That makes sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, The sleep language here, just a reminder to the audience, it's not the same as in chapter 4 where sleeping was a term for those who have died, but rather sleep here is describing uh, choices of lifestyle uh, and morality. All people, um, they have a sleep cycle, right? All living things have a sleep cycle. Naturally, that sleep cycle makes you tired at nighttime, at least for for humans. We're not nocturnal creatures. And so um, you are subdued by sleep. This outside force then, the nighttime sleep, it takes over you. Just like the outside force of alcohol takes over you. Morally speaking then, 
uh, we don't let sinful things take over us, like someone who can't stay awake any longer or someone who is drunk. Uh, I think that uh, is is what Paul's getting at here. I think what you're saying is right as well, Nick. But uh, in verse 7, then, we hone in on this idea of getting drunk and why Paul would choose that analogy and also if it has anything to say about the Christian actually drinking alcohol. And so here's the question. Nick, is it wrong to get drunk? And how do you know when you are drunk? Uh, So drunkenness is a sin, especially clear in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine. So obviously that means we can get drunk with uh, beer, liqueur, scotch, rum. Right. Take your pick, right? As long as Je- it's not wine. Jello shots. He didn't say anything about jello shots. That's right. It, it only it only talks about wine, right? It doesn't say anything about all the other stuff. <laughs> um, oh, and don't even get me started on uh, you know marijuana. We can get high because the Bible doesn't say anything about weed, right? It's natural, Nick. It's unfortunately, natural. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, this kind of specious reading of the Bible is characteristic of how, how some people read the Bible. It doesn't say not to, and that's a terrible way uh, to to read Scripture. Drunkenness is categorically uh, condemned. What say you, Alex? You know, I think most Christians would agree that drunkenness is wrong, but there are many Christians who find it okay to have a moderate amount of alcohol. And so the argument for moderate drinking um, it has many good points that are biblically based, but where I myself cannot get on board and therefore must respectfully disagree with the moderate drinker is the element of subjectivity. I mean, what constitutes as moderate? How drunk is drunk? The passage that we're in right now, it adds more confusion to the debate. If Paul uses drunkenness and soberness as a metaphor for moral and immoral living, then does that mean we can live a moderately immoral lifestyle, just like we can uh, drink moderately uh, some alcohol? You know, I want to give grace to both sides of the drinking debate, because I think there are good arguments on both sides. I'm just saying why I choose not to drink. It's interesting that you bring up marijuana, because, you know, one could easily take the same arguments for moderate drinking and apply them to moderate smoking of marijuana. Yeah. In fact, part of what got marijuana legalized in certain states, Colorado, Washington, um, were arguments that were presented to legislature that showed the relative health and public safety concerns between alcohol and marijuana, with alcohol being vastly more detrimental to your health and to public safety. So I'm just saying we have to consider these things, especially as the times change and as we look at things that people might be uh, putting in their body that steals their soberness that isn't wine (laughs) so we we have to look for well what are the principles that guide us for what do we do with our soberness and what does that mean with what we put into our bodies any thoughts nick uh well i got lots of thoughts but i don't want to spend the rest of our time spinning out on (laughs) alcohol and drunkenness after after hours the only thing i'll say is i i concur i agree with you um I am with you in uh, the abstinence. I, I too, affirm um, that uh, it's good to stay away from that stuff entirely. Um, there's just, um, yeah, it's it's just uh, 
it's it's not a good thing i think for christians i think there are a number of reasons for that um perception right wrong or indifferent um the uh case to be made for addiction um so there's a lot of different not to mention that the basic character how how is alcohol characterized by the sages of the ages wine is a mocker beer is a brawler those who are led astray by them are not wise so yeah I can, I, hear, I can hear people, though, in the background right now in my head just saying, but it's not a salvation issue, Nick. It's not a salvation issue. It's just like, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 90%, 99% of the things we talk about on Sunday and Wednesday and in podcasts and in our Bible reading are not salvation issues. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't help the conversation, does it? We're trying to figure out what the Bible says and how do we live by it. Yeah, and what's what's the best way of living out the, the Christian ethic as it's presented in the yeah. Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nick, speaking of soberness then, Paul continues in verse 8, and he compares soberness to putting on spiritual armor. Um, why does he do that? Why does he relate soberness to putting on armor in verse 8? He does a similar thing over in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. He mixes those uh, same metaphors in an exhortation for Christian behavior. And so all this metaphor mixing, I believe, is aimed at encouraging Christians to exercise self-control. You need to be prepared for life in a world that is hostile to Christianity. Uh, You need to be prepared to follow the pattern that is modeled in Christ. And so I I think that's what all the mixing of the metaphors is about. What say you? Yeah, I think that's a good cross-reference there, Romans 13. I agree, and I also think that the more you think of this as a real battle, the spiritual warfare that we're in, uh, the more you would want to stay focused on the right things. If you're putting on armor, that's battle language. The last thing we need, then, is for our soldiers to be in a drunken stupor on the battlefield because they'll get mowed down left and right by the enemy. And so I think Paul's uh, mixing of the metaphors here makes makes sense. Now, Nick... uh, also in verse 8, why does the spiritual armor differ here from Ephesians 6? Well, so while the, uh, while the helmet remains connected with salvation, uh, and, and, and you see that, uh, the helmet, uh, for a helmet, the hope of salvation, the breastplate is different here than in Ephesians. In in Ephesians, it's connected with righteousness, right? Whereas here in five verse eight of First Thessalonians, it's connected with faith and love, uh, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And so, I think the short answer is we don't really know why, why there's a shift. Um, it's especially interesting, given given the uh, obvious allusion to Isaiah 59 and verse 17. Um, right, that's right. If I were to speculate, um, so a few options come to mind. One, Thessalonians was written at least a decade before Ephesians, so Paul just had more time to develop the armor of God motif, and, and he does. Uh, that's one possibility. Another is the uh, the life situation, what scholars call the Sitzenleben of the Thessalonians. is uh, it, It's different than that in Ephesus, and it called for a different emphasis hmm. uh, when it came to the armor of God. Uh, the third option is Paul. He's just he's capitalizing on the faith, hope, love triad. He's already played on them a couple of times in this epistle, and so he's just he's doing it again. 
Um, and if that's the case, then faith protects us inwardly, love protects outwardly, and the hope, salvation, uh, looks upward to God. So yeah, uh, those are a few options. What do you think? Wow. You know, I really like your option uh, two and three. In fact, I'll kind of combine those. So mm-hmm. Paul takes their strengths uh, that he's already complimented them on. Uh, chapter one, remember their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And he turns around and he says that that's their spiritual armor. And I wonder if we could today as Christians use the same technique. Let's say, Nick, if you're an extra thankful person, then that's your breastplate. Put on the breastplate of thankfulness. Hmm. Uh, that could be an interesting spiritual exercise. Get together with other Christians point out what qualities they excel in and then figure out what pieces of armor that would be on them and it's really uh quite fascinating sounds way more exciting than the spiritual gifted inventory test (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a good uh good little exercise small group exercise yeah that's right uh verses nine and ten nick we have um some language here that makes us wonder did god predestined those who would be saved and thus those whom Christ died for. I mean, it it really sounds like it here, doesn't it? Um, As Paul writes here, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he he has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, uh, we might live with him. There is a guy, oh, Crum, what's the guy's name? <laughs> He's based out of Kentucky. This guy, you want to talk about Calvinist? He was hyper-Calvinist, all right? He said <laughs> he, he really emphasized verses like this and texts in Hebrews, which talk about how you, once you're destined, there's nothing you can do to change it. The question, I think, uh, boils down to whether... Uh, What's being emphasized here? Is it the person or the place? Um, is that which of those is being decreed from of old? In other words, is Paul speaking of the individual being predestined to either wrath or salvation, or is he talking about the wrath or salvation being the destiny of individuals based on whether they are of the night or of the day, respectively? Right. Um, I incline toward the latter, because here's the thing. Unlike what our friend in Kentucky would say, Don Fortner, there's his name. (laughs) I'm naming names, that's right. Um, (laughs) Unlike what Mr. Fortner would say, uh, destinies and destinations change based on one's allegiance. For example, someone in darkness could see the light. Uh, In addition, someone in the light could make shipwreck of their faith. And so... So God has arranged things in such a way that the destiny for Christians, those who are of the light and the day, the destiny for those people is salvation, whereas the final fate of the faithless is the full force of the Father's fury. Uh, That is to say, um, if you are a child of darkness, a child of the night, uh, all that what what has been arranged for you is eternity away from God. Uh, so does that make sense? Well, Nick, that's just the illusion of someone changing their mind from uh, darkness there. to light. They were of already course. saved before eternity. Eh, and color it, me embarrassed. It's just the illusion of someone changing their mind to shipwreck their faith. They were actually uh-huh. never saved in the first place since right. before eternity. 
Drat. Wrong again. <laughs> no, I like your person versus place distinction. I think that's where we need to hone in um, on this idea. It's similar to saying that there are two roads, each with a single destination. You can choose what road you want to travel, but you cannot change the destination to which that road leads. So it is the same with salvation and condemnation, which predetermined path will you walk? And do you believe that these roads lead to where God said they would lead? Hmm. That's the question. Well, Nick, verse 10, what does Paul mean by living together with Jesus, whether we are awake or asleep? Yeah, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him there at the end of verse 10. So uh, there is a reading of this verse which would have it so that whether Christians are spiritually watchful or not, they'll be saved. And I think this is connected to our previous discussion about um, destined to obtain salvation. At the heart of that reading is what is colloquially called once saved, always saved. Hmm. However, that, that reading does not properly interpret the way Paul has been using awake or asleep in the larger context here of not just chapter 5, but uh, bleeding back into chapter 4 as well. How has he been using those? It's life and death is, is how those have been used. And so uh, it seems that not even death can separate the Christian from Christ. Well, it doesn't just seem that way. It is that way. Romans 8 verse 38, not even death can separate the Christian from Christ. Um this echoes Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he says to live is Christ, to die is to be with Christ. So uh, we live with him now, and we will live with him one day. And uh, we that that is our enjoyed station, our enjoyed status as Christians. Not even death can separate us from him. What, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, it seems that Paul switches back to the use of sleep from chapter 4. Uh, those dead in Christ are asleep. Those alive in Christ are living for him. And both groups, emphasis on both, will, future tense, not yet, they will live together with Christ. Um, it, this play on words, it's, it's similar to other passages in the Bible that will say, you know, even though um, you are alive, you're actually dead. And even if you're unfaithful, but even if you're dead and faithful, you are still alive. And so this whole play on living and dead and how you live while alive, that is common throughout scriptures, in the Gospels as well. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Jesus' response to Martha and Mary at the resurrection of, uh, at the death of Lazarus before his resurrection in John That's 11. what I was thinking yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this uh, section here then in chapter 5 of Thessalonians, it's a nice end cap to what Paul already said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Um, the conditional element, though, rests upon these first eight verses of chapter 5. Will we live as sons of light or as sons of darkness? That's the conditional element. Are we going to live like we are alive or are we going to live like we are already dead? So that's a uh, the, the, the matrix of, of uh, metaphors that Paul is wrapping up here. <laughs> so verse 12 then, Nick, um, who are the ones in charge of the Thessalonians? We get into a different section here at the end of chapter 5. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Um, for me, my read is this: of this is uh, this is elders, uh, the working among, the being over, the admonishing. They all come from a single group, and just about every commentary that I was reading dances around this being elders. They usually opt instead for. Uh, just leaders more generally, or a pastor, or those in leadership positions, but they never talk about a body of elders, and I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Now, what do you think? Why do you think they dance around that? Because they're uh, ecclesiastical government structure is different than um, what you read in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, I, I agree. I opt for the elder's view here as well. You know, there are three different words that describe the work of an elder. Uh, first, they're called an elder because they're an older man. Um, they have the life experience necessary to be a good instructor, and that covers the work of teaching and admonition. Uh, second, they are called pastors or shepherds, the same word in the Greek, because they lead and care for God's flock. And that covers here the having charge over them element. Third, they are called overseers or bishops. It's the same Greek word again, because they have the work of administration, and that covers the working and diligent labor element here in Thessalonians. So elders, pastor shepherds, overseer bishops, these are all describing the job of what I would consider to be the leadership of any congregation. And the qualifications for this job are listed elsewhere in Timothy and Titus. So First Thessalonians 5.12 doesn't say elders. But it certainly has the right description of what we know about elders from these other passages. Could there be other leaders? Sure, uh, like deacons, evangelists, teachers, and uh, at least for the first century church, apostles and prophets. But 512 sounds like an eldership. Uh, Nick, are these final instructions then, verses 14 and following, are they for just those leaders, the eldership, or are they for everyone there? I, I lean toward everyone. <clears throat> Verse 14 begins, we urge you brothers. Uh, brothers and sisters is, is how that can also be translated. That seems to indicate that this is intended for everyone. What do you think? I agree. Uh, I've heard people, though, use these final verses as a directive specifically for the elders as they're trying to build their theology of church leadership. And I think that's not quite right. As you pointed out, the conclusion um, here betrays the uh, betrays the context. These directives are for the brethren, all of them, brothers and sisters, not just the eldership. Uh, verse 14, then, you have these lists of directives that we're supposed to do. Uh, what does it mean, then, it says first off here, to admonish the unruly? What does it mean to admonish? Who are the unruly that need to be admonished? Uh, so uh, admonish simply means to instruct. It means to exert corrective influence. Um, a, uh, a literal understanding means to put in mind uh, uh, some particular uh, cor corrective instruction or um, influence, something like that. So, sure. Um, what do you think? Um in Acts 20, verse 31, Paul says that he admonished the Ephesians for three years, night and day with tears. 
And he says that when talking to the elders, when he calls them for a meeting at Miletus. This word, admonish, I just want to emphasize that it's not harshness. Right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says he admonishes them as if they were his own children. And that's the picture of what it means to admonish, like a father or a mother trying to lay something of importance and urgency upon the hearts of their children. So Christians, that's the way they are to admonish each other. And here it's with a specific group called the unruly. And I think the unruly that he might be referring to are the same group in Second Thessalonians who are refusing to work. Yeah. I think he also calls them unruly and undisciplined over there. And so if someone's being a lazy Christian, <laughs> you don't have to kick them out, but you need to admonish them. You need to lay that sense of urgency and importance upon their hearts so that they'll change, make better use of their time. Uh, it also says next then, encourage the faint-hearted. Nick, how do we do that? How do we encourage the faint-hearted? Verse 14. So <clears throat> faint-hearted could be, um, you could be faint-hearted based on your personality, your, your general disposition. Uh, think of like a, a timid person, for example. Uh, it could also mean someone who's discouraged due to a downward turn in their particular fortune. So there's a couple of ways of taking that. But um, I think it's important to keep in mind that these Christians, they were undergoing uh, pretty severe persecution. Some of their loved ones had died. They also missed Paul. He wasn't there with them. Hmm. And they were very close with him. And so all this could have contributed to a gloomy disposition to being faint-hearted and so such a person needed to be uh, uplifted they need to be cheered up that's what the word encourage here means like a father with his child and so i don't know maybe a a dad joke you know something like that <laughs> uh, but just something to uplift something to encourage uh, what do you think i like that a dad joke you know i suppose we'll have to be creative in how we encourage the faint-hearted right um Notice how Paul doesn't say that we have to fix the faint-hearted or fix their problems or solve everything for them. It just means we have to encourage them, and we can be creative in the ways that we do that. Well, what else do we verse, have here? Verse 14 <clears throat> also talks about helping the poor. So, Alex, how does one help, or excuse me, help the weak? How does one help the weak? Ah, well, it's hard to say what Paul means by the weak. Are these you know, physically weaker people, not able to care for themselves because of old age or disability? Um, are these spiritually weak people, not able to withstand much persecution without losing all hope? Uh, the word in the Greek here, it can also be translated as sick. So are these sick members of the church who need help, prayers, visiting? Um... I probably opt for that third choice there, that these are sick members who need uh, visiting or prayers. Uh, but I suppose it wouldn't hurt the Christian to also choose all of the above, right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> these are all good things. You can find these in other passages. Um, Nick, verse 18. We've asked this question before in chapter th 4, but uh, we're going to ask it again. What is the will of God? Well, it's this... Uh very mysterious and vague and, and elusive concept um, that you really need to have. Uh, How dare you talk back to the potter? That's you, you piece need of volumes. Clay. 
You would never written. understand the will of God. Books. His thoughts are above your thoughts. <laughs> After book. Yeah. Um, but that, that, I mean, that's the thing. People, people try to turn God's will into something mysterious and elusive. And, and yet right here in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Let me tell you why. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right. Give thanks always. That's that's the will of God is that you give thanks always in all circumstances and all situations. Paul <clears throat> has been explicit in this book about God's will for Christians. It is not mysterious. It is very plain. Uh, what do you think? Wow. Be a more thankful person. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not complicated. Um, I think that's doable for us today. And imagine, though, they, the Thessalonians, they were going through real persecution. And Paul says, be a more thankful person. <laughs> That's, I mean, that can be hard at times. I suppose we should remember that the next time we feel depressed about the state of the world or the state of the nation or the state of the church, maybe a lot less complaining and a lot more I'm thankful would probably be quite effective for encouraging each other and reaching the lost, for that matter. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's I think that's right on the money. Well, we get into this interesting phrase here at the end. We're in verse nineteen. It talks about quenching the spirit. What does it mean, Nick, to quench the spirit? It's so, like Gatorade, quench your thirst. What is yeah, that? Is uh, that Sprite? What was that slogan? Quench your thirst. Yeah, uh, that, I think it was Sprite. Fire <laughs> is a common metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So just as one would smother or extinguish a flame of fire, one could potentially extinguish the Spirit. Um, The immediate context connects this with uh, despising prophecies. We'll talk about that more in a moment. If we could expand the principle, though, and I think we can, that fire can be extinguished just as a normal fire can. Uh, You can do that a couple ways. One, lack of fuel. Hmm. The Bible says without wood, which is fuel, without wood, a fire goes out, Proverbs 26, verse 20. So I think it's also true with the Holy Spirit when we don't read our Bibles, which is the Holy Spirit's inspired word, Hmm. when we don't pray, when we don't share God's word, when we don't stir up our souls for good works, uh, I think all those are ways that we can hinder the spirit of burning, as he's called in Hmm. Scripture. Uh, Also... Uh, you want to kill a fire, you smother it with water or with dirt. Um, and so I think also we can smother the Spirit in our lives through criticism, unkindness, belittling the work of others, careless words. I think those are all wet blankets that we heap upon the Spirit within us when we engage in them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's good application for today. When I read this verse, I was reminded of a few other verses that use this fire language in connection with spiritual gifts. We covered 2 Timothy in previous podcasts, and in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells Timothy to kindle afresh, or some translations say, fan a flame, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And there was also a passage in 1 Timothy, which we haven't gotten to yet, but chapter 4, verse 14 says, uh, What does it say? It's another reference to the same gift given to Timothy. It says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Uh, Presbytery is the same word for elders. It comes from the Greek word presbyteroi. Um, 
It's unclear what the gift is that Timothy needed to fan a flame, but there are two things that are pretty clear. Number one, Timothy needed to exercise that gift, so it was his choice. He could do it or not do it. And two, the gift was intimately connected to an event where Paul and a group of elders laid hands on Timothy, accompanied by prophetic utterances. So let's talk more about prophetic utterances here in this next verse. Nick, verse 20, which prophetic utterances do you think Paul is referring to, and why would they be possibly despised? Yeah, do not despise prophecies. Um, So the gift of prophecy was the means by which the church in the first century received and communicated direct revelation from God. Um, These are utterances that were inspired of the Holy Spirit. So why would they reject that? Why would they despise that? Well, one idea of why the Thessalonians were rejecting this prophecy is connected to the idea that many of the congregation uh, were Gentiles. They had turned from idols. We read that way back in chapter 1. Right. So there were, in their day, pagan religious cults which practiced forms of ecstatic prophetic utterance. Right. So perhaps what was happening in assembly reminded them too much of that old practice, and so they just rejected it outright. And Paul says, oh, not so fast. You need the good stuff. You know, test the, test the uh, spirits to see whether or not they're from God and all that, but uh, you, you need the good stuff. So test everything, hold fast to what's good. That's how verse 21 reads. So, right. And I think this is important for us. Because we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, says Peter, to Second Peter 1, verse 19. Dig back in the archives of the podcast. We talked about that in the, in the past. But our Bible is the repository of redemptive revelation, which must not be rejected. We would do well to pay attention to it for what it is, and that is the, the very word of God. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um my answer, though, to the previous question kind of laid out what I think Paul is getting here, uh, mm-hmm. getting at here when he talks about quenching the spirit. And so just like he told Timothy to fan a flame the gift of God within him, I believe quenching the spirit then would be to neglect the gifts or skills which the, the Holy Spirit has given to you, uh, whatever those gifts are. So since Timothy's gift was given because of prophetic utterances, I imagine that the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul or maybe those elders that laid hands on him, on Timothy, um, or maybe some unnamed prophet that was there at the time. And then the Spirit not only gave Timothy a gift at that time, but then commissioned Timothy through these prophetic utterances in regard to how he should use the gift. It's similar to when Paul and Barnabas were called by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. Uh, that says... While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Uh, There are many common touch points here between Acts 13, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, and now here in 1 Thessalonians 5, that all lead me to conclude that Paul does not want the Thessalonians to ignore the speaking of the Holy Spirit through current prophetic utterances that could happen among them, uh, not just the past ones recorded in Scripture. So the question is, why would they despise these utterances? Uh, Nick, I actually really like what you said about comparing these 
instances of prophetic utterance to perhaps pagan experiences with oracles and whatnot, and the negative reception that possibly had among these Christians who were converted out of paganism. Another possibility, however, could be that they might despise these utterances because they spelled out doom and gloom for the Thessalonians. I mean, this just in from from the prophet, uh, more persecution on the way, says the Spirit. (laughs) It's like, that would be hard to accept. Paul was no stranger, though, himself to unfavorable prophetic utterances. Remember Acts 21, verse 11, where the prophet Agabus took Paul's belt, tied it around his own hands and feet, and then said, the Holy Spirit says whoever owns this belt, so will the Jews in Jerusalem do to him. <laughs> that, yeah. that is not a favorable prophetic utterance. And yet Paul did not despise that utterance. He said, I'm willing to die at Jerusalem if that's God's will. So, oh yeah, by the way, Paul said, give thanks and everything. <laughs> so, that's right. Maybe that's what he's uh, alluding to. Any any thoughts on that? That was kind of a long spiel. Any thoughts on that, Nick? <laughs> uh, no, I, th- I think we've upholstered that subject quite nicely. All right. Verse 21, um, it says they are to examine everything carefully then. Uh, what is it they are to examine? How do they do that examining? What do you think, Nick? Yeah, uh, examine. My English Standard Version says uh, test test everything. Uh, they are to test the prophecies to determine whether they are from God. And again, I mentioned earlier, First uh, John 4, verse 1, is where we are called to test the spirits to determine whether they are from God. Not every ecstatic utterance was of divine origin. Some came from demons, from unclean spirits. Right. Those that were from God, though, were to be held on to. And perhaps the gift of discernment was utilized to determine the validity of the prophecy. They had that then, too. Right. And um, another method would be to uh, hold the prophecy up next to apostolic teaching. If it matched, well and good. If not, throw it out. So uh, I think those uh, could be a couple ways of how they determined the, uh, how they tested, how they examined carefully everything. Uh, What do you think? No, I I think you're right on the money there. And uh, they especially needed to watch out for any prophetic utterance that would change or alter what they believed concerning the nature and character of Jesus, right? which seems to be the target of many false teachers and false teachings, both in the early church, as we can see in the New Testament, and even today, really. And so that's always going to be target number one, is altering the nature or character of Jesus. And that's where you get these false teachers and um, false religions from. Right, you are. Verse 13 had talked about be at peace among yourselves. Now again, as we approach the end of the book, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul seems to emphasize peace uh, here in this last section of the book. Why does Paul emphasize peace here, Alex? Well, they didn't have peace. They were under persecution. And Jesus makes it clear, Paul makes it clear, the uh, entire Bible makes it clear that the world is hostile towards Uh, Christianity towards God's people. And the last thing we need is to tear each other down from the inside. Um, We need to live in peace with one another. That's why he says that in verse 13. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think that's 
part of what Paul's hinting at here in verse 23. He reminds them about their God. He is the God of peace. Peace for his people, peace for their souls, and peace that comes from the hope of the resurrection. And so it's not, it's not world peace. It's not um, bringing all conflict to an end. That's at least not through our way. We have to wait for God to do that on his terms and his way. And uh, that is what we look forward to in the resurrection. Any thoughts there, Nick? Only the connection that the God, it's the God of peace who brings us peace that passes understanding. Right. Philippians right. chapter 4. Um, so, and, and you're right. It's not just the absence of war. It's the subtle understanding that the God of the universe um, is in control of, of my life. So. Right, right. Well, Nick, it's about to get metaphysical up in here. All right. <laughs> We love metaphysicality. So, that's right. So verse 23 talks about uh, our spirit and soul and body. So does that mean that man is tripartite in nature? That's the uh, three parts there. What do you think? Yeah, so we don't have to sing let's get metaphysical because we already are metaphysical. Um, hey yo. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, so I've... I, I preached a, a four-week series on this topic over a year ago, so I just want to, as best I can, summarize my conclusions for that. And what I, what I found, and um, kind of where I lean, there, there's, there's three major views on uh, mankind's human composition. Um, first, there's what's called physicalism. That is, you are a body. Everything about you can be reduced to a physical process, which takes place in some part of your body. That's physicalism. That's all, that's all you are, is just a body. Second is what's called dualism. You are an embodied soul. That is, you have an immaterial soul which resides in your physical body. And therefore, in this view, soul and spirit are the same thing. And there's verses that seem to indicate that with uh, parallelism like Luke 1 and the Magnificat of Mary and my soul magnifies and my spirit rejoices. So those are usually equated in that way. Third is the trichotomist. And uh, that is you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And the primary text for this view is, you guessed it, right here in front of us. Verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, there is a whole Bible full of material which demonstrates that physicalism is incorrect. We are not just uh, material machines dancing to our DNA. Your mind is more than just neurons firing off in your brain. J.P. Moreland has actually written a, uh, a fat book and a skinny book on this subject. Uh, the big one's called Body and Soul. Uh, for me either the dualist or the trichotomist position uh, is is best. All Christians believe in the soul. Perhaps some conflate that with the spirit. Fine. Uh, but I think we all need to agree that everyone has an immaterial part of themselves which will survive the body and then be reunited with a spiritual body one day. So um, that's a broad overview here of... Uh, the composition of people. Alex, what do you think? Option number four, <laughs> monism. This is all a hologram. We're inside of a computer program. 
and everything is spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, I'm sure the Matrix. that's out there. The Matrix, there man. No, um, okay, my real answer is <laughs> <laughs> I like the way uh, N.T. Wright words it. He says, I'm going to quote him now, we need to think in terms of a differentiated unity. Paul and the other early Christian writers didn't reify their anthropological terms. Though Paul uses his language with remarkable consistency, he nowhere suggests that any of the key terms refers to a particular part of the human being to be played off against any other. Each denotes the entire human being while connoting some angle of vision on who that human is and what he or she is called to be. So, end quote. (laughs) I like how he cautions us not to play these parts against each other because uh, that happened in ancient philosophy. That happened in the first century. Um, Things were said like all flesh is evil and all spirit is good and therefore blank, you know, this doctrine or that worldview. Um, Things like these bodies that we have are prisons and we must be freed from them. It's like, well, I don't know if that's actually biblical. (laughs) Our physical bodies are good. In fact, we're getting upgrades in the resurrection. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our current bodies are earthly. Our new ones will be spiritual, but it still says spiritual bodies. It's still a body. There's something physical that will still be there. And even when we talk about disembodied spirits, like for those who have died, they still apparently have body, memories, feelings. Think about the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, um, the rich man felt thirsty. He wanted Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put it on his tongue. I mean, there's some physicality that's still there. I would say that man is both body and soul, so the dualist position, but what exactly makes up the body um, we like to think we know, but uh, I'm I'm not going to say we know. What exactly makes up the body? What exactly makes up the soul? I think that's unclear. Uh, in the passage at hand, I would then take um, the spirit to either refer to like the same thing as soul, but um, that's one possibility. What I lean towards is actually, I think spirit here is referring to the life which God gave to us in our whole being once having been born again as a Christian, namely through baptismal regeneration. Any final thoughts on that, Nick? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, spirit and soul and body. Yeah, that uh, you could spin out on that old chestnut all day. That's right. <laughs> well, um, he's going to bring something to pass here. Nick, what will God bring to pass? Verse 24. Yeah, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it or or bring it to pass. Um, And it's just what was talked about in verse uh, 23, that uh, the God of peace will sanctify you completely, and you'll be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So sanctify Christians completely, be presented blameless when Jesus returns. That's what he will do. Bingo. And it's uh, you might not catch that the first time because we're talking about verse 24, he will bring it to pass. But it reaches back to the beginning of verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. So check out the last two podcasts for a deeper dive into the idea of sanctification. Verse 26 then. 
Nick, what is the holy kiss, and should we practice this today? Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, says verse 26. This was an established practice in the church, probably performed during assembly when they were as the church together. Uh, the kiss would have been given either on the brow or on the cheek. They would not have done it on the mouth. It was a symbol of familial love among siblings, friendly affection, honor, things like that. I think the closest we get in our day is a holy handshake or a holy side hug. Uh, and we usually chalk this up to cultural practice. That's sure. why we don't do it anymore. So what say you? You know, Nick, I'm always unsure of what to think when I hear someone use this verse and ask this question. Usually it's someone saying, see, see, we don't practice the holy kiss anymore because it was cultural. So that means we don't need to fill in the blank, you know, whatever it is. Um, I'm always left wondering, so are you saying you want me to kiss you in order to be hermeneutically consistent? Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe next time I'll call their bluff. <laughs> <laughs> and bottom line is that, you know, it is sometimes tricky filtering out what we should still practice today as Christians and what was just cultural to the first century and therefore the early church. But uh, as far as the holy kiss goes, I think I'll opt for the holy handshake. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's interesting about this kind of stuff is how um, naturally we do that. How it's almost as if we've been designed in order to um, differentiate that, that there are certain practices which were cultural that uh, they, they don't get carried across the bridge of time to today. And um, it's so it's a it's a hermeneutical thing, right? It's, right, it's how right. we interpret the Bible, and um, and and we we do kind of do that uh, very quickly. And holy kisses, I think, one of those ways that right uh, illustrates that. Right. Well, uh, verse twenty-seven. This will be our final question that we'll spin out on for a minute. Mm -hmm. The question is: Are there multiple congregations in Thessalonica? And how circulated, then, did Paul intend this letter to be? Yeah, verse 27, put you, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. My understanding of the church situation back in the day is that there were multiple house churches that were scattered throughout any given city. Romans 16 is a great example of this. It has about a dozen different house churches um, uh, listed there in that chapter. I think... The same is true for Thessalonica, that there is but one church that Paul writes to. One verse one, he says, to the church in Thessalonica. But it was composed of many congregations that were peppered throughout the city. Not unlike what I think we have today with multiple churches of various sizes in any given city. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, multiple house churches in Thessalonica makes sense. Um Unlike Colossians 4.16, where Paul specifically says to swap letters with their sister city, Laodicea, here it just says the brethren. Um, and it wasn't addressed to anybody specific at the beginning. It, it just says um, to the church of the Thessalonians. And so it's to all of them. Um, let's see. I think Paul probably intended then for the brethren and all of the house churches in Thessalonica to get this letter, for them to read it, to pass it around. And it's obvious, though, that later on in history, circulation became more of a practice. I mean, that's how we got our New Testament. 
The real question then is, I'm thinking of verse 12 again. Are the leaders whom we called elders back in verse 12, are those leaders, that eldership, are there multiple groups of those elders and each group is over one house church? Or is there one group of elders who who are over all of the house churches in Thessalonica? And in that phrase, you know, verse 12 Um, the leaders who have charge labor among you. Um, Does that help us at all in figuring out this question? What do you think, Nick? So I'm I'm inclined toward the multiple groups over multiple house churches. Um, And so the among you, they're among, that body of elders is among a specific congregation. However, um, so I just I kind of wonder about your situation. You're planting a church in uh, Minnesota. There, um, I don't think the situation has changed since we came and saw you last. You, you didn't have elders at the time, right? Right. So, so I I don't think you have elders now. Is that right? No, we don't have elders at the congregation. Um, so so I, I my question for you is: Do you fall under? The uh, do you fall under a certain eldership? We do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We do. We um, the North North Side Church of Christ in in Wichita, Kansas, is mm-hmm. um, what we consider to be our overseeing congregation. And that word overseeing is is intentional. It's because the the eldership there, the overseers, um, are are whom we've placed ourselves under as far as uh, the work that we do here, and that's who we send our reports to, and that's that's where the, the bulk of our support comes from. So, um, so yeah, I guess in our scenario, <clears throat> that eldership is over multiple congregations, Northside and this church plant, at least until this church plant grows to the point where it can appoint its own elders that are on right. site here. And so that's, that's an interesting scenario uh to compare as well would something similar have happened back in Thessalonica and um that's I don't know I don't know I don't know if this is uh because you gotta think how big are these house churches too and like so what are the pool that they would get you know gather from is the pool at each house church big enough to say we have qualified elders that's that's and again, we don't know. We're not sure. Yeah, well, the other verse that comes to mind is over in Titus. I know we've talked about it in previous podcast episode, chapter one, about how Titus was to appoint elders over every city, and um, you know how you you kind of have what, uh, what um, would that be a diocese <laughs> <laughs> to, to borrow more contemporary language, but. Um, yeah, was is that the way <clears throat> it was kind of structured in Thessalonica then, right? And so that would be what the second scenario <clears throat> where you have a uh, group of elders who are over all of the churches in Thessalonica. I don't know, not sure, but I could see how this passage would really support either <laughs> either view. Yeah. So, um, so there you go. Talk about dioceses. <laughs> yeah. Well, that concludes First Thessalonians, Nick. Um, what book are we going to cover next? Uh, 
we are going to go to an Old Testament book, a um, little three-chapter guy, Joel, the book of Joel. All right. Uh, it should be, should have quite a kick. Bring on the locusts. <laughs> well, I believe we have arrived now at our one-minute sermon, Nick. All right, one-minute sermons. Again, as always, we... Alex and I were both preachers. We know Sunday's coming. We want to give all the preachers in the audience uh, a good head start on their sermons That's right. uh, for this Sunday. And so the way this works, I've selected a song title from any genre. Alex has selected a song title from any genre. We don't know what the other has selected. I will give Alex the song title. He'll come up with a sermon right on the spot one in one minute or less. And then he'll do the same thing for me. He'll give me a song title, and I'll have to come up with a sermon, uh, the start of a sermon with a, an appropriate text. That's right. Uh, with that song title. So. And though the songs are copyrighted, the sermons are not. So feel, free, right. feel free to use them as, as you want. <laughs> freely we have received, freely we give. That's right. That's right. Well, Nick, I believe it's your turn to go first today. And uh, I stumbled across a song this week I'd never heard before. I thought I heard you know, most songs in the 90s, but this is a song from 1998. Okay. 1998. And it's by a band called Jump Little Children. Jump <laughs> Little Children. And the name of the song is Cathedrals. In cathedrals of New York and Rome, there is the feeling that you should just go home and spend the rest of your life trying to find what that is okay nick here we go one minute on the clock (laughs) cathedrals go so solomon builds the temple you can read about that in first kings chapter eight uh seven and eight i believe and he consecrates that as the cathedral where the one true and only God would be worshipped. Fast forward now, Acts chapter 2, and you have the day of Pentecost, Peter and the apostles preaching the gospel to uh, thousands of people there. Over 3,000 people are baptized. They are converted, and they become a new cathedral, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They still meet in that, uh, that old cathedral for a little bit, that temple, but now they have become a new temple, a new cathedral that are made of living stones. Uh, Peter talks about that, First Peter chapter 2. Uh, so cathedrals, we, all, the, all the, the Lord's church are cathedrals. So, Wow, one I, minute. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Well done, sir. Well I'm done. I'm thanking you. I'm thanking you. <laughs> I heard a sermon... Uh, it was a recording of an old sermon by, I think, Klein Payton, or maybe it was Gerald Payton. Caves to Cathedrals. That's right. Yep. The uh, movements start in caves and they die in cathedrals. That's right. The uh, church is born in caves and churches are born in caves and die in cathedrals. It's interesting. All right, Nick, what do you have for me? Rolling up well, the we're, sleeves. We're going to stay in the 90s. 90s theme today, just uh, by accident. This was the first and only song from a Disney animated film to top the U.S. Billboard 100. (laughs) And I'm not talking about the movie version. I'm talking about 
the version, the actual studio version by Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell. And actually, this was uh, one of two back-to-back Grammys that Peebo Bryson won for a Disney animated song. Wow. The other was uh, Beauty and the Beast, which came, I believe, a year later. But a year before that, this song hit theaters. A whole new world, <laughs> a new fantastic point of view. No one to tell us no, where, where to, to go. go. Say we're only dreaming. There you go. Your song title, should you choose to accept it, is <laughs> A Whole New World. A whole one new world. minute, 60 seconds on the clock. Let's hear your one-minute sermon and go. All right, A Whole New World. Well, that is the Christian hope that this old world will pass away and all of its works with it, and we will be given a new world. We've alluded to it before in Second Peter chapter 3. It says that according to uh, verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this will be a reversal of all evil. Babel will be reversed. We will not be divided by language anymore or into nations uh, the flood will be reversed. Uh, the Garden of Eden and the fall will be reversed. And we'll be back in a space where God dwells with him, his angels, us, all of his redeemed. It will be a whole new world. This is the hope of the resurrection. And we're going to get a whole new body to uh, occupy this whole new world. <laughs> One minute. <laughs> <laughs> A dazzling place I never knew. <laughs> okay. Uh, How's that song begin? What's the, what's the start? I can show you the world. That's right. Yeah. A there magic carpet ride. That's right. Um, By the way, did you know genie is the Arabic word for demon? <laughs> there you go. Subliminal messages in the Disney That's right. movie. That's right. Uh, by the way, that, that little song selection was courtesy of my middle son. Uh, he he we, That came on 90s on 9 on Sirius XM, and he said, Hey, could that be a sermon, a whole new world? And I was like, one minute sermon. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you, son. That's right. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for today. Hour and 15 minutes on the clock. I think that's enough. We we can uh, wrap it up here. Um, if you, what do we what do we uh, want to remind our yeah. audience of here? Well, first of all, thank you, diligent listener, for enduring <laughs> our uh, seventy five minute presentation. But right. if you can't get enough of us, go into the uh, Google Play Music Store, go into the iTunes Store, search Swordplay. You'll find our podcast there in those respective places. Download them to your particular device. They'll go with you anywhere, and you can study the Word of God anywhere. Leave a review, share on social media, help us get the word out about our podcast. Yeah, emphasis on leaving a, uh, a good review on iTunes. That will help the podcast reach a wider audience. So we want to get the word out and use the technology available to us to spread the Bible through the, uh, through the whole world. And the Internet's a good tool to use that with. Podcasts are a if, good tool. If someone has a question, Alex, can they send it in? Absolutely. You send your questions to 
swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts, your questions. We'll get back to you immediately. It's uh, something we enjoy doing. So I guess that's all we have for today. We will see you next week as we start the book of Joel. And tune in next time for another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.